0: Series of uh, lectures, which is one of a number of events which the school is organising to look at the challenges facing Britain, British politicians um, after Blair, as it were, or uh, rather as it almost now is. The next event in the series uh, will be on Wednesday, 9th of May. Uh, The title is New Labour, 10 Years On, with Tony Giddens, Neil Kinnock, and Ed Miliband. But more importantly and immediately, I'm delighted to welcome Sir Stephen Wall uh, this evening, who is obviously feeling uh, nothing if not uh, keen and playful. As you can see from uh, the title of his lecture, Will Blair's Dream Be Brown's European Nightmare? In the course of a career which which so far has seen him as EU advisor to Tony Blair from 2000 to 2004, uh, as head of the uh, European Secretariat uh, of the Cabinet Office in that period, Uh, UK Permanent Representative to the European Union, Principal Private Secretary to three successive Foreign Secretaries, Sir Geoffrey Howe, John Major, um, and Douglas Hurd, a time in which I had the pleasure of working very closely with him. Uh, Stephen has more than a passing acquaintance with with, uh, matters European, not only with the issues um, and with uh, Britain's European partners, but uh, also with the home team not least Tony Blair and indeed Gordon Brown. That doesn't guarantee that his reflections will be invariably uh, more judicious and full of insight will be judicious and full of insight, but I'd lay a bet that they will be uh, more than most of the rest of us could manage. And I won't spare his blushes uh, when I say that his reputation for uh, thoughtfulness uh, as well as professionalism uh, precedes him. And I should also mention that Stephen, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is currently working on a history of the UK's relations negotiations with the European Union for Oxford University Press. So he's clearly not a man to shirk life's challenges, least of all a testing LSE audience which uh, takes no prisoners. So Stephen, we are very much looking forward to what you have to say.
1: Thank you very much for that uh, introduction. If you go onto the uh, Number 10 website, you will find a, a whole paean of praise of Tony Blair, put there by unbiased uh, sources working somewhere in Number 10, to celebrate the 10th anniversary of his election as Prime Minister. And there's a long passage about Europe which ends with the following summary. We have placed Britain at the heart of Europe on our terms. Britain now plays a leading role uh, in a transformed Europe instead of carping from the sidelines. The debate in Europe is now widely acknowledged to be following an Anglo-centric model to the frustration of some other nations. Now, it's three years since I worked for Tony Blair, so I can promise you that I didn't write that. But I have written it. I have written it for Tony Blair in the time I did work for him. Uh, I've written it for John Major in the time I worked for him. And I've written it for Margaret Thatcher when I worked for, uh, uh, for her. It is a classic statement of the British view of Britain's role inside uh, the European Union. And it illustrates one uh, point, really, which is the premise from which I will start, which is that for Britain, Europe has always been uh, a problem. Uh, We all know the reasons why we joined late. We reluctantly accepted the transfer of sovereignty involved in membership of the European community because of the economic price we were were paying for not being part of it. The passage of the 1972 European Communities Act, which is the basis of our membership, was problematic. Uh, The then uh, Attorney General, uh, Geoffrey Howe, did not conceal the fact that membership of the European community uh, involved the primacy of European community law. But nor did ministers at the time go out of their way to stress the point to the House of Commons for fear that if they did so, uh, the the bill might not succeed in getting a a majority on the floor of the the House. Ted Heath took Britain into Europe in 1973 um, with what was called at the time Fanfare for Europe, uh, which was a kind of musical uh, extravaganza. He might have had more success if he'd actually had a funfare for Europe rather than a fanfare for Europe because... Uh, the scepticism of the British public uh, in the face of this uh, event was perhaps a precursor of things uh, to come. Uh, It is indeed uh, characteristic of our membership of the European community that while we didn't have uh, a referendum on whether we should go in, we had to have a referendum three years after we... in fact, less than three years after we had gone in in order to determine whether we wanted to stay in. That was followed in very short order... Uh, by uh, what's known to those of us who were involved in it as the battle of the the budget. Uh, Margaret Thatcher's uh, famous struggle with her partners to get her money back. And that argument, the root of which was was necessary, I've always always believed that uh, uh, there was a basic injustice in Britain as one of the poorer members of the European community paying into the budget uh, more than any other member state. Uh, except uh, except Germany, but the way in which that battle was uh, was conducted set the terms of our relationship with uh, uh, our partners for time to come. It ruined whatever personal relationship Margaret Thatcher had with her fellow uh, heads of government and partly uh, accounted accounted for the fact that she had very little sympathy, political sympathy or personal sympathy, For the view of the European community, which was embodied in the position taken by Helmut Kohl, the German Chancellor, and by François Mitterrand, the French uh, uh, President. In 1985, when uh, Helmut Kohl talked to Margaret Thatcher about his fears of Germany drifting towards a dangerous neutralism, and this was at a time when nobody had foreseen the demise of uh, uh, of the Soviet Union, her reaction was to say, well... Uh, That's that's nothing to do with with the European community. That's what what NATO is for, whereas what Kohl was striving for was a form of political union which would bind Germany in with France uh, into a European uh, European construction. Similarly, when the debate began about economic and monetary union, she was not sure whether to treat it uh, as something that wasn't serious, i.e. empty grandstanding, or uh, a real threat. If you look at her speeches and her, her, her writings, she's constantly asking the question, what, this, what does this union mean? To her it was, uh, at, at best, uh, dangerous uh, uh, hot air. The fact that our partners weren't willing or able to define it meant for her that it was to be disregarded, and she didn't see that for them the concept of, uh, of union was important just for the very purpose of creating that binding cement between countries with a long history of uh, of conflict and disagreement. So instead, uh, she focused and focused very successfully on issues of pragmatic uh, reform, reform of the common agricultural policy, liberal trade agenda, uh, economic reform, uh, the single market. I think she, more than any other European politician, can claim credit for putting the single market at the top of the... Uh, European agenda. It was then carried into uh, effect by Jacques Delors and by uh, Lord Cofield, but she was the person who put it at the top of that uh, uh, agenda. But that was seen as a substitute, if you like, for the kind of institutional change that our partners wanted uh, uh, to see. Geoffrey Howe in, uh, 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 in 1985, when... Our partners were saying, yes, if you want the single market, then we need to change the treaties to have more majority voting. Geoffrey Howe, as the Foreign Secretary, was arguing that, no, the Treaty of Rome, the treaty which governs our membership of the European community, that is, in effect, the European community's constitution uh, and cannot be subject uh, to change. It was always easier for British governments to absorb gradual, practical change than visible uh, institutional uh, change. After Margaret Thatcher's uh, demise and John, when John Major came on, the, on the, the, the scene and made his famous speech about wanting to put Britain at the heart of Europe, the phrase that's picked up in the Number 10 uh, text from which I quoted at the, uh, uh, at the beginning, John Major wanted to place our relationship with our partners on uh, a different basis. But again, the domestic constraints made that uh, impossible for him uh, to do. Tony Blair is very critical of the... Opt out negotiated by John Major at uh, Maastricht on economic and uh, monetary union uh, on the basis that the political reality was that uh, uh, there was no question of Britain being forced to join something if it didn't want uh, to do so. Well, it didn't quite seem like that uh, at the time. And what, of course, is now overlooked and overlooked in the, in the propaganda, as it were, on both sides is that the point, the reason why Britain negotiated a very detailed extremely detailed text on the opt-out from the Maastricht Treaty and from Economic and Monetary Union was not just that we wanted to opt out, but because also we wanted to secure without any question the conditions under which, if and when we wanted to, we could opt uh, opt in. Unfortunately for John Major, his attempts to create a more favorable climate of opinion uh, fell foul really, I think, fell foul of the demise of uh, uh, of Margaret uh, Thatcher. Opposition to the European uh, Union became a symbol, if you like, of loyalty among some conservative backbenchers to the uh, ancien regime. And I think that that mood, that climate, is something from which the Conservative Party is only just beginning now uh, to emerge. It did, of course, make it easier for new Labour to position themselves in opposition... In a much more pro European way, simply by contrast with the position that the John Major government was forced to take uh, in, its, uh, in its dying days. And I think that many of us, myself included, perhaps thought that there was more difference of substance because of that positioning than was in fact uh, the case. It's worth reflecting on a speech that Tony Blair made during the election campaign in 1997. It was the only speech that he made on foreign policy. He made it in Manchester, and it was called A New Role for Britain in the World. And I'll quote what Tony Blair said in that speech about Europe. He said, there are three choices open to Britain. The first is leaving. The second is in, but impotent. And the third is remaining in, but leading. Of course, we must stand up firmly for Britain's interests, and as I have always made clear, we must be prepared to stand alone in support of those interests, if necessary but it is misguided to make perpetual isolation the aim of our policy. I want Britain to be one of the leading countries in Europe. This is a good moment for Britain to make a fresh start in Europe, for the other Europeans are not involved in a gathering rush to a European super-state. In fact, there is a good deal of unease at the pace and direction of integration in many continental countries, not just Britain. And if there were a desire for a super-state, said Tony Blair, we would not hesitate to stop it in its tracks. We want a Europe where national identities are not submerged and where countries cooperate together, not a giant and unmanageable super-state run from the centre. Well, barring one or two uh, changes of, uh, of tone, that is exactly the speech that John Major made in his day and that Margaret Thatcher made in hers. Tony Blair went on to say, the hardest question remains economic and monetary union. It is not yet certain that it will go ahead on 1 January 1999. I can, he said, see formidable obstacles to Britain joining in the first wave if it does go ahead, not least that Britain is at a different stage of the economic cycle to the rest of Europe. There must be genuine sustainable convergence between the economies that take part. We will have no truck with a fudged single currency. However to rule out membership forever would destroy any influence we have over the process. Therefore, we will keep our options open. And when we make our decision, we should do so on the basis of a hard-headed assessment of our national economic interest. Then comes what, to me, is the most interesting bit of this speech. The issue between the parties is not the position on economic and monetary union. Our position and the formal position of the Conservatives are the same. The real issue is one of leadership and clarity, John Major's agonies over the single currency illustrate the real dividing line on Europe. It is not federalist or anti-federalist. Neither of us wants a federal superstate. We agree on the maintenance of the national veto in vital areas like tax and treaty change. We agree on the single market. We agree on our attitude to the single currency and the referendum. The real dividing line is between success and failure. The fundamental differences lie in party management, attitude, and leadership. Now I wish I'd paid more attention to that speech than I did because uh, I might not have been as disappointed as perhaps I am uh, at some of the things that uh, later followed. A day after that uh, uh, speech, writing in the Sun newspaper, Tony Blair said, let me make my position on Europe absolutely clear. I will have no truck with a European superstate. If there are moves to create that dragon, uh, I will slay it. Now, some of that... Uh, Rhetoric. Some of the caution quite clearly reflected uh, Tony Blair's sense of the political uh, realities, and in many ways, Tony Blair was similar to his predecessors on Europe, but also there were uh, differences. Uh, He never shared Margaret Thatcher's view of Europe as the source of uh, all uh, our problems. She once famously said that in her lifetime, Europe had been the source of all our problems, and. Uh, the the transatlantic relationship, the source of the uh, solutions. He was not, uh, like John Major, constrained by the lack of uh, uh, a majority. What he did share, I think, was his predecessor's view of Europe as essentially based on intergovernmental cooperation, cooperation between uh, governments without much regard for the role of the supranational institutions. So at Amsterdam, the Amsterdam Treaty, which followed within a few weeks of Labour's uh, advent to to power, Tony Blair was uh, pretty cautious uh, in what he was prepared to uh, sign up to, the most significant uh, thing that he did sign up to being, of course, uh, the famous social chapter to which Labour had been uh, committed uh, in its uh, its manifesto. Uh, Interestingly, I think Tony Blair would probably be the first to acknowledge that some of the measures taken under the social chapter have been among the more problematic uh, issues for this government as they certainly would have been for any of its uh, predecessors. All that said, he was less instinctively uh, cautious and reluctant than either colleagues uh, or civil servants on a number of uh, of issues where in practice uh, Britain has not uh, made uh, changes and for perfectly good reasons of national interest by which I mean in particular issues like majority voting on taxation or on social security. But he was, he was prepared to look at those on a personal basis. He was prepared to look at those things with an open mind. And in his early days, was always looking for, asking for ways in which we could cooperate better with our European uh, partners. It was he who invented the policy of so-called step change, whereby on a consistent and systematic basis, we looked for ways of cooperating with, uh, with other member states. And at that stage... The only only difference that emerged between Tony Blair's thinking and and, uh, that of uh, of Gordon Brown was uh, economic and monetary union. But I think it's simplistic to believe that in Labour's first term, Tony Blair wanted to go ahead with the euro and that Gordon Brown uh, did not. The speech I quoted is symptomatic of that. Now, the manner in which the decision not to go ahead uh, with Uh, a Euro referendum. The manner in which that decision was briefed from the Treasury was indeed about power politics between numbers 10 uh, and 11. But I think that economic and monetary union was always likely to be an issue for the second term. In the first term, the agenda was establishing Labour contrary to its previous track record as a party that could manage the domestic economy uh, successfully. The notion that you see expressed quite a lot that Tony Blair could in those early days have walked on water and that was the one opportunity he had to push through a referendum on the euro, I've always myself believed to be uh, fanciful. I think it's worth remembering that the government nearly lost the referendum on devolution uh, uh, in Wales. Could they afford, after 18 years in the wilderness, to put their credibility on the line as they would have done on EMU had they had a referendum so soon after coming into office? Now, of course, in the second term, things were different. There is no doubt that Tony Blair wanted to take Britain into the Eurozone for political as much as uh, economic reasons. He wasn't prepared to fudge the economic arguments, but equally those arguments were never uh, a precise uh, science. They were always a matter of political as well as economic uh, judgment. And I know that in 2003, Tony Blair wanted to get into a position where, without saying so in terms the policy of the government would clearly have been that it was a question of when we would join, not whether we would join. Now, Gordon Brown would not uh, allow that to happen, and as a result, the issue of EMU membership was swept uh, off the agenda uh, of uh, the Labour government. So I don't think that's a question that we were saved uh, by Gordon Brown from taking a mistaken step. There's no question of Tony Blair wanting to join the euro immediately. The consequence, though, of the disagreement between them was that we were, have been, prevented from positioning ourselves so as to keep euro membership even as a realistic uh, policy option. Now, of course, that decision uh, taken in 2003 pretty much coincided with the uh, Iraq war and the creation of um, a new fault line uh, through through Europe. I think that uh, it was a seminal moment for two reasons, really. First of all, because Tony Blair, who had always argued that there was no contradiction between a good relationship with the United States and a good relationship with uh, our partners, chose unhesitatingly to take the course of the relationship with Uh, the United States Uh, if there is any validity in the analogy of a bridge across the Atlantic uh, we were certainly only using the bridge in one direction, I don't think it ever occurred to Tony Blair to try and formulate an agreed European policy and to take that policy to Washington now what would that policy have been? That policy would not certainly have been to go to war against uh, Saddam Hussein on the timescale which the Americans wanted But nor, I think, would it have been to rule it out, and I think it would have been to keep up uh, a consistent uh, pressure uh, on uh, on Saddam Hussein. But, as I say, that uh, that was never part of the calculation. However, what the dispute down the center of Europe also illustrated... Was the fact that France and Germany could no longer determine European policy? Schroeder and Chirac attempted to do so, and they found an equal and opposite reaction, uh, not just led by Britain, but reflecting the views of other member states, uh, including at the time the governments of Spain uh, and Italy and Portugal uh, and the Netherlands and some of the countries of Eastern and, uh, uh, and Central Europe. That led, in turn, after the war was over, I think, to a realization on the part of Jacques Chirac that. Uh, If uh, he couldn't overrule us, then he had to make some effort to find an accommodation uh, with us. And there was a concerted effort in 2003 to build a trilateral relationship. The offer that Chirac made to Tony Blair in the summer of 2003 after the Iraq war was basically to put the relationship, relationship that Britain had Uh, with France and Germany on the same basis as the relationship which those two countries uh, had with with each other. There was one successful outcome of of that attempt, which related to European defense, which I'll talk a bit about uh, uh, later. Uh, In the end, the policy uh, policy failed. It failed for a number of reasons. It it failed partly because the relationship between France and Germany was so firmly uh, established And had been achieved not just by the heads of government traditionally over a period of of decades planting a flag somewhere in advance of their troops and forcing their troops to then march uh, uh, towards it. That was in turn reflected by the most detailed cooperation at every level of both uh, governments. We simply weren't in a position to replicate that. We were also therefore the junior partner uh, in the relationship and I remember going to uh, to meetings which was meetings of the three uh, countries where it was clear that the French and Germans had met beforehand to concert their position before the Anglo-Saxons arrived uh, in the room and fundamentally and ultimately it was difficult for us to make the kind of uh, compromises which have characterized the Franco-German relationship one of the reasons it has succeeded is because both countries have been willing to make rather significant compromises of a political kind towards each other our uh, attitude to Europe has made that uh, difficult. And for those reasons, among others, the policy, which which I think was was a brave attempt, uh, founded. Overall, I think that Tony Blair's record on Europe is um, a mixed one. I think he will feel disappointment that he was not able to take Britain uh, into the euro. I think he will feel disappointed that not more was done to convince the British people of the case for successful EU membership. Uh, Timothy Gartnash said in a lecture just over a year ago that uh, two words summed up uh, why Tony Blair's EU policy had failed, and the words are Rupert and Murdoch. And there was much truth. There's much truth in that. Having secured the support of Murdoch for New Labour, Tony Blair was not going to put that at risk. When he took his decision in 2004 to offer a referendum on the draft constitutional treaty... He knew already that he lost the Murdoch press over Europe. He was not ready to risk losing the support of the Murdoch press for new labor uh, altogether. Even before then, the Euro issue had cast uh, a long shadow. Given the differences of view between Numbers 10 uh, and 11, it was hard to persuade other ministers to make the European case. You don't likely put your head above the parapet if you risk being shot at by the Treasury's expert Snipers, uh, and those ministers, mostly brave but short-lived, Europe ministers in the Foreign Office, who did venture onto the battlefield, were dropped on from a great height. Gordon Brown's Treasury has not believed in taking prisoners. So most ministers, enjoined to make the European case, preferred uh, the safety of the uh, of the dugout. Now, if you read Tony Blair's speeches, he has made the case powerfully and consistently but you will look in vain for similar speeches from uh, other ministers. Where Tony Blair has made uh, a difference is in the kind of areas where you would traditionally expect a British Prime Minister to make a difference. Uh, One of those areas is the whole issue of uh, economic reform, which uh, which he has championed. He has done more, than any of his British predecessors to advance, and this is one of the paradoxes, really, of of his policy towards the United States and towards Europe. He has actually done more to advance the cause of a European foreign and uh, and security policy, and I don't just mean by uh, antagonizing so many other EU member states that there's been an equal and opposite uh, uh, reaction. The one achievement of the trilateral cooperation between uh, France, Britain, and Germany in in 2003 was to defuse what could have been a very serious dispute over uh, European defense. You may recall that earlier in that uh, year there had been a summit between France, Germany, and Belgium at Tervuren, the so-called Chocolate Summit in which the three countries basically offered to set up outside uh, any uh, of the existing military structures the scope for a European headquarters that could run European security and defense uh, operations. This produced a very serious and adverse reaction uh, in the United States, who saw it as countering the umbilical link between NATO and European security uh, operations. And for a time, the British policy was to organize opposition to what the French and Germans were uh, doing. Uh, But Tony Blair saw very clearly that that was a risky policy. He saw that if there were a change of government in Spain, as subsequently happened, or if there were a change of of government in Italy, as subsequently happened, then those two countries were likely to go with the French uh, and Germans, and that over time, support for the Atlantic British-American position would seep away. So he negotiated uh, an agreement with uh, Chirac uh, and Schroeder, an agreement that was ferociously opposed by the uh, United States. And I think it was the one occasion in my experience where Tony Blair had to put as much of his relationship with Bush on the line to get the Americans to basically trust his judgment uh, and not voice their uh, uh, their opposition. I think that the Americans would now uh, acknowledge uh, that Tony Blair was right in his judgment and that by taking the action that he did, he did actually make the right decision not just in terms of diffusing a potentially dangerous row within the European Union, but also actually in practice in preserving the relationship between NATO and the European Union in uh, security uh, matters. And the other areas where I think Tony Blair can claim real credit are on putting energy uh, and climate change at the top of the European Union's uh, agenda. There was a a famous, or at the time seemed to be rather infamous, one-day summit uh, at Hampton Court during the British presidency, which was rather dismissed, by commentators at the time, but it is from that summit uh, and the conclusions reached at that summit that the serious attempt now to have a common European energy policy for the first time uh, derives. Now, how different will Gordon Brown be? If you assume the continuation of the situation of the last three years where the European Union has not been a contentious domestic issue, i.e. since the demise of the Constitutional Treaty, then it would be fair to assume that the priorities established by Tony Blair won't change. Now, what's harder to read is whether Gordon Brown will invest in them the same attention and determination. My sense is that climate change and energy policy have not so far been issues which have hugely captured his imagination, unlike the international poverty agenda where his initiative and advocacy have been powerful and compelling and have set much of the international agenda but unfortunately for Gordon Brown the European Union as a domestic issue is stirring again because of the constitutional treaty and he will if he does take over take over at the very moment when that treaty is being revisited I guess that uh, Gordon Brown and David Cameron probably have this in common on Europe they would both like it to go away Gordon Brown because it opens a wound in British politics in what will already be the opening shots of a general election campaign. and David Cameron because for the first time since 1997 the Conservative Party can see the prospect of forming the next government and want to equip themselves with policies that would be sustainable in government. And those policies include policies on Europe. The last thing an incoming uh, government needs is a set of promises on which it cannot uh, deliver. Uh, Any promise made in opposition to renegotiate the European Union treaties in Britain's favor requires the unanimous consent of 26 other countries. uh, With an improbable amount of luck, Uh, an incoming government might just succeed in that. More likely, they would be forced to compromise to achieve an an agreed outcome, so risk either having to climb down, or if they're unwilling to climb down, putting Britain's continued membership of the EU possibly at risk. And the assumption that in the last analysis, our partners would not be willing to see uh, Britain leave the European Union is not, I think, an assumption that any British leader can afford to make. That's why, at the height of her powers, Margaret Thatcher was such a successful negotiator. She knew uh, when the moment to settle had arrived. And my sense is that the Conservative Party are reaching for a position on Europe that would be sustainable uh, in, in, in government. And for both them and, uh, and Labour, the resurgence of a version of the Constitutional Treaty presents uh, real problems. Europe isn't going to go away as an issue, and some of our media are girding themselves already to proclaim a massive confidence trick that whatever new treaty proposals come forward, to replace the failed constitutional treaty will be the same unacceptable transfers of sovereignty by the back door. If you read last week's Economist, you will see the argument set out in respect of the agreement that was reached by Tony Blair and the Dutch Prime Minister, Mr Balkanender, that instead of a constitutional treaty, there should be an amending treaty. And the Economist implies that this is part of the confidence trick. Now, in fact, there is a huge and fundamental difference. The Constitutional Treaty was a treaty that would have replaced the existing uh, uh, treaties. So regardless of your views about its substance in form, it was a very significant uh, event. Uh, a treaty which amends the existing uh, uh, treaties is, I think, in political terms and legal terms, a rather different uh, proposition. But by the time you've explained all of that, most of your audience have at best uh, fallen asleep What will probably be on the agenda from June onwards is a package of treaty amendments designed to make the European uh, Union more workable under enlargement and drawing on some of the practicalities from within the European Constitutional uh, Treaty. Issues like voting weights in the Council of Ministers, the size of the European Commission, how member states can cooperate together uh, uh, where there isn't agreement among the Union as a whole the whole question of justice and home affairs, the fight against terrorism, illegal immigration, etc., the issue of whether the European Union should have somebody in the role of uh, a foreign minister, long-term chairmanship of the European Council, abolition of the six-monthly presidency, an enhanced role for national scrutiny of European uh, legislation. Now, most, most of those things on substance are one which any British government led by either Tony Blair or Gordon Brown, ought to be able to uh, accept. The the Conservatives in the person of William Hague have said that anything which involves transfers of power to uh, Brussels will be unacceptable. Now, it's very likely that the provisions of the Constitutional Treaty relating to cooperation in justice and home affairs, which do envisage more majority voting, would uh, uh, possibly fall foul of of, uh, that uh, criterion. But... Um, Britain, as a result of the uh, opt-out on our frontier controls negotiated in the Amsterdam Treaty, is not obliged to take part in any immigration measures which our partners might decide to vote on by majority voting. So that issue as well may be one uh, that in political terms uh, can be uh, be dealt with. One issue where I think any British government should, in looking again at... um, what might follow the Constitutional Treaty, one place where I think we should take a different view than the one we took uh, three years ago is on the Charter of Fundamental Rights. Now, you may recall that the Charter of Fundamental Rights started as a political document and became, uh, uh, in the the draft of the Constitutional Treaty, a legally binding uh, document. Most of it uh, uh, represents obligations which we should be only too happy to sign up to, for they are about... Uh, basic human rights but within that charter are issues which if the safeguards that were negotiated were not sustained in a case in front of the European court if that were to happen then the industrial settlement, economic settlement negotiated or achieved by Margaret Thatcher and sustained by this government could be in jeopardy now it's a long shot, the chances are that the court uh, constrained by the language of the constitutional treaty would not find Uh, in uh, in that way, against us. But I think that it's a risk in political terms that we should not need to take. And I think from the point of view of of, uh, British business uh, with whom I have uh, dealings in my present uh, incarnation, it would be an assurance to them to know that the Charter of Fundamental Rights was not going to be uh, as it would have been under the draft constitutional treaty Illegally binding document. And that is a battle, if it has to be a battle, which I think Gordon Brown could and should fight. The aim of the German presidency is to get the parameters of this negotiation settled at the EU summit uh, in June, to have the negotiation completed during the six months of the Portuguese presidency that follow, and to have the whole thing ratified in time for the European Parliament elections in 2009. Now, in all of that, there is a strong German uh, national interest uh, because uh, if the provisions of the constitutional Treaty in this regard are replicated, they will have a greater voting weight than any other member state and more MEPs than any other member state. So what's in it for the rest of us? On the positive side, there are the practical changes I have mentioned, but I think you would be less than human as an incoming Prime Minister behind in the opinion polls not to ask yourself the question whether the game is worth uh, the candle. In other words, whether for these measures it is worth going through all the pain of political argument, both in the country and in the House of Commons that will undoubtedly uh, be involved. So, what are Gordon Brown's options? One option is to play for time. After all, the period of reflection that we have been enjoying in the European Union for the last two years since the referendums in France and the Netherlands, has been largely about waiting for the outcome of the French presidential election. So could Gordon Brown not play for a similar delay until after the next uh, British general election? I may fear that the answer to that is, is, is no, or at least not without aggravating the relationship which he will want, as a new prime minister, to have with the French president and the German chancellor. I think Tony Blair's last act on the European stage would be to sign up to the timetable for negotiations which Angela Merkel envisages, and Gordon Brown could not repudiate that without endangering his EU relationships from the outset. Another option by which he might, given his Thatcherite negotiating style, be tempted, would be to up the ante. It would not, in objective terms, be foolish for the new Prime Minister to say... What is now on the table is a series of useful, but not hugely significant changes, which answer some of the less important issues surrounding the management of the enlarged European Union, but not the fundamental one. The fundamental one being that 40% of our European budget still goes on agriculture, which represents a diminishing portion of our collective economic output. So, the new prime minister might say, "Let us wait until 2008, when the Commission had anyway, the European Commission had anyway, been asked." to make recommendations about the shape of the European Union budget and then make the substantive changes we need as well as the necessary but not overwhelmingly important institutional changes as well, do the whole thing together. I think this also comes up against the problem of being both too late and unlikely to command support among a sufficient number of other member states. Nor, I think, would it actually be in the interest of the United Kingdom no French president can afford to be seen to neglect the French farming interest. This is one part of the Chirac legacy that neither Royal or Sarkozy could so publicly uh, abandon. Even in our own country, Geoffrey Howe, Morris will remember this, Geoffrey Howe used to say that if the Church of England is the Conservative Party at prayer, then the Conservative Party is the National Farmers Union at prayer. Now, Of course, in reality, French agricultural interests are changing, uh, and France, as a growing net contributor to the European Union budget, has an almost British interest in seeing expenditure curbed. But this is an argument, this argument about agriculture as a proportion of the EU budget. This is an argument which will be won, I think, in smoke-filled rooms, not in the glare of publicity, where a French policy shift would look like a concession to the perfidious Britons. So by this route, I think we would risk a row and an unproductive row. That in turn suggests that the best option, however unattractive, will be to bite the bullet and to agree some changes which will be in the interest of the United Kingdom, uh, even if they're presented by parts of the press and almost certainly by the opposition of further concessions of power to a Brussels bureaucracy hungry to create a European superstate. Now, one way of meeting that criticism would be for Gordon Brown to do what successive British governments have done, which is to claim, in effect, that Europe is indeed a problem, something of a dangerous animal, but one that somehow the British lion tamer has successfully caged. In a way, that's what uh, I quoted from the Number 10 website uh, embodied that view. But this kind of nursemaid's baby view of European uh, politics only brings foam to the lips of uh, the Eurosceptics, while doing nothing to assuage the anxiety of ordinary people who don't obsess about Europe but think that something is going on that they don't much like the sound of. So in my view, the only way to win the argument on Europe is to make the argument for Europe. And the question, I think, is, is Gordon Brown the man to do that? I think the answer is not instinctively. He is, first and foremost, as I read him, a domestic politician who's passionate concerns are deeply and honorably rooted in the history and achievements of the Scottish Labour Party. His international actions have reflected those uh, concerns. And insofar as he has drawn political and philosophical inspiration for his economic policies from overseas, it has been from the United States. Now, the British public may expect their next Prime Minister to strike a more balanced relationship with the President of the United States than the one we have had for the last several years. But that, of course, does not automatically translate into a desire for a closer relationship with our European partners. Gordon Brown frequently articulates his policies through speeches that are the fruit of long thought and reading and are very much his own work. And there is a speech to be made on Europe which in outline is this. The European Union was created to ensure peace in Europe, but it was not just about No more war. At the heart of the project was a recognition that the countries of Europe have a damagingly quarrelsome history and that, at a minimum, to manage those quarrels, you need to empower some institutions to ensure that what happens in Europe is not dictated by the outcome of a struggle between the most powerful countries in which the weakest go to the war. That is what the European Commission, the European Parliament and the European Court are for and they have worked. The task may not be as dramatic in 2007 as it was in 1957, but anyone who has witnessed the protectionist pressures that confront governments in all our countries will know that those pressures are best resisted by having a set of rules which all are obliged to follow and which are capable of enforcement. Gordon Brown's speech might go on as follows. For many years, there were some in Europe who did hope that one day there would be a political union, a federation of some kind. Those hopes are no longer on the agenda for two simple reasons. The first is that our greatest success story has been the emancipation of eight countries, formerly communist and under Soviet occupation, that are now free democracies with liberal market economies. Those countries are now members of the European Union, and it is the support of the European Union that partly accounts for their successful transformation. In due time, we hope to do the same for Turkey and Ukraine and the countries of the Balkans. That recent history means that the European Union will remain a union of nation states. The second reason, Gordon Brown might say, why the idea of a European super state is off the agenda is because economically and politically powerful though we are, we are relatively modest players in the great global scheme of things. So what are the issues that matter most for Britain? The security that comes from shared political values uh, is one. In 1972, when we joined, there were eight other countries who shared those values. Now we are 27. Another is the ability to promote our economic interests worldwide. The European Union has trade and aid agreements with most of the countries of the world. Those agreements do more for peace and security through soft power than can be achieved by the exercise of so-called hard power. Then he might go on, to name as British interests, climate change and energy security. Nothing that we want to achieve in those areas can be done on our own. We need to cooperate with others. Who do we have most in common with as we tackle those matters? Not the United States, not the countries of the Commonwealth, not China. No, the people we have most in common with are our democratic neighbors, our fellow members of the European Union. How, he might ask, do we best manage the Chinese superpower or the Russian bear? by having common policies with countries who share our values and with whom we have common interests. We need a common energy policy in Europe as much for reasons of foreign policy as any other. And if we do not want Germany to have a unilateral relationship with Russia, including one of energy dependence, then we had better ensure that we have a coherent European policy that offers a viable alternative. How, he might ask, do we tackle world poverty? through the EU's aid policies, the world's largest aid effort? How do we tackle trade inequalities through common EU policies which are not yet as generous as we British would like, but which would be much less generous without the part we have played uh, in shaping them? Now, no one who has seen Gordon Brown negotiate can doubt his grit and determination. His passion for the national interest is emblazoned on everything he does. I believe he has a better chance than any recent predecessor, therefore, of persuading the British people that there are big issues at play here which do not require us to neglect our national preoccupations but do call to us to lift our sights and to exercise European leadership. The temptation to dig in in difficult domestic circumstances will be very great. But as I have argued, these difficult institutional issues will not go away. Gordon Brown's response to them will determine his relationship with Merkel and with the next president of France. If Britain digs in alone, then every European summit between now and an eventual messy compromise will be dominated by institutional wrangling to the neglect of the vital issues we should be focused on. Will Gordon Brown seize the hour? Well, you don't have to be a pro-European to hope so. You don't even have to be pro-European Prime Minister to do so. There is uh, a compelling national interest, and I for one hope and pray that our next Prime Minister will be the man to articulate and implement that vision for all our sakes. Thank you.
0: and interesting, thoughtful lecture. Thank you very much indeed. Um, uh, Stephen Wall has a kind agreed as to how format to take some questions. So I will just say the usual uh, boring thing about thinking, thinking, sure. uh, there will be a microphone coming. If you'd um, like to say you are, or will have to as well. We've got about mm-hmm. half an hour. Do have to take them
1: one by one, Stephen? Yeah, sure, whatever, well. whatever you normally do. Yeah, and that may be, in the last analysis, an inevitable uh, outcome. Uh, But I think it is to be avoided if one possibly can. Uh, I think that Angela Merkel's strategy is the right strategy in the sense that what she is going to try and do uh, in Berlin is to get agreement on what the parameters of the negotiation should be. Now, if it transpires that the the, the things that I've uh, outlined, which would be acceptable to uh, to Britain, acceptable to France... um, probably acceptable to Germany they're not going as far as they would, uh, would like. If those can't command support among the, the, uh, the 27 as a basis for the negotiation, then my own view would be it would be better not to embark on the negotiation because the last thing we uh, can afford to have is years and years of wrangling about issues which are fundamentally not that important uh, for the future of the European Union. They would be beneficial changes in, in, uh, uh, in, in my view. We have within the existing European Union treaties, as well as in the draft constitutional uh, treaty, provision for this so-called enhanced cooperation among uh, groups of member states. And in a sense, we've we've learned to live with that. Um, The Schengen Agreement on Frontier Controls between uh, member states, which uh, was a precursor of what is now in the the treaties, was the first such uh, example. Economic and monetary union is another example. Effectively, foreign policy and security cooperation in large measure uh, in its implementation, as a matter of enhanced uh, cooperation, so there are ways in which it could be, in which it can be, in which it can be done. But the crucial element in all of those things is the consent of the entire membership for the method in which others uh, should go ahead. And one of the one of the one of the strengths that we have as the European Union, and one of the strengths that, interestingly, has been preserved despite enlargement. Uh, is obviously the impact which is made by 27 countries who uh, who share democracy and share the interests that go along uh, with it. And those who are still practitioners uh, in Brussels, which I no longer am, say that rather to their surprise, the ability to take decisions on the day-to-day running of the European Union has not been impaired. Indeed, we are now uh, taking decisions or about to take decisions on energy policy and climate change, which which are intrinsically extremely difficult. Um, but with perhaps slightly more chance of success than we might have had in the uh, in the past. So I would I would hesitate to to go along with the idea that uh, there is a sort of a core group of countries who somehow embody the kind of European ideal and that they can go ahead and leave the others behind. I think that that would be dangerous.
0: Yeah, I'd like to sort of jump about between. Uh, um, sorry, the gentleman. But having said that, you have had your big opposite The system.
2: Yeah, I think so effect, and then oh. I will. Um, thank you, uh, John. Hume, My question is this: Is uh, Gordon Brown um, a Eurosceptic in disguise, or alternatively, why has he spent so long prevaricating over the single currency?
1: Well, it's, I don't. I mean, I don't know the answer to that question. It was always said that in opposition, uh, before Labour came into power, he was more enthusiastic for the. Uh, for the single currency than, um, uh, than Tony Blair. I mean, I guess that part of it uh, was that uh, you know, he, he discovered the joy of being a, finance, uh, a national finance minister uh, running uh, an, an economy and, and sharing some of that uh, uh, power might have become uh, uh, less attractive. Uh, I do think that there was, a, there was genuine uh, concern on his part that the necessary convergence uh, conditions had not been met uh, when the assessment was made. Uh, in 2003 that said I think it is true that, um, uh, that the assessment itself as made by uh, the treasury I mean, Enoch Powell used to have this theory of television lighting which he called lighting for and lighting against in other words if the television studio liked you they would probably give you favorable lighting and if not uh, they would make you look like uh, uh, a monster and I think that the, that the treasury assessment uh, of, the, uh, of the test was very much lighting against uh, they reached the, the most unfavorable uh, conclusions almost regardless of the, uh, uh, of the evidence. Now, that may uh, also have been, in large measure, by that stage, caught up in you know, Tony, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's own relationship and Gordon Brown's views about um, uh, when he should take over as Prime Minister, etc., cetera, et cetera. So I think all of those things uh, colored it. Now, whether does that make him a, uh, uh, a Eurosceptic? My, my own sense... I don't think that he's a traditional uh, uh, Eurosceptic. I think he's somebody, and again, maybe maybe he shares this with with David Cameron, who doesn't instinctively think that Europe is the way in which we most naturally advance uh, our interests. He thinks, obviously, on a national basis. He thinks, in some areas, on a global basis. And he does think very much in terms of the... uh, Uh, of the United United States but what I was trying to argue in the speech which I was impertinently uh, writing for him is that actually when you look uh, objectively at how do we pursue our interests the most logical place to start is with those countries with whom you share uh, the most interest and by and large those countries tend to be our European partners so I hope uh, if he, when he becomes prime minister, and he's obliged for the first time to focus on some of those issues uh, in a, in a, on a basis for which he, on the, he is responsible, uh, that he might uh, uh, draw the same draw the same conclusion.
0: Uh, Rose Donaghy and Clara O'Donnell.
2: Hi, I'm Rose Donaghy from the Commission for Racial Equality, uh, where I work on European relations. Um, you outlined. Um, Some of the areas where Gordon Brown might want to take a lead in Europe, such as energy policy, climate change, and future enlargement, what you didn't mention was social policy. Um, And given that, uh, depending on the outcome of the French elections, but there's a strong commitment there to make whatever treaty we have more social, both Sarkozy and Ségolène have said that in various ways, um, and given also Angela Merkel's commitment to have some kind of social face to Europe, how well do you think this will go down with Gordon Brown, and will he pursue that or uh, Like that? a like
1: a lead, like a lead balloon, um, and uh, this 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 may be the start of the uh, of the uh, uh, of the uh, fundamental disagreement uh, you were you were talking about. I mean. the nature of of all these negotiations is that everybody has to to kind of touch uh, a domestic nerve in a way that enables them to uh, uh, get the thing through, the House of Commons or a referendum or whatever it it might be. Um, But I think that, uh, I mean, this this government, uh, it signed up to the European Social Chapter. That was part of its uh, its inheritance, as it were. Um, But I I would be surprised if... um, in the kind of privacy of their own minds, there were many members of the government who actually think it was a good thing in their perception of the British interest to have uh, uh, to have done so. So this could be, I mean, this is a kind of knife-edge thing. I mean, there is, that's, in a sense, there are, there are a very small number of issues on which you might just reach consensus among 27 that these are the things we're going to negotiate about. You then have a negotiation where people may conclude, well, that was, you know, all fine and good, but does that change the... Uh, the price of fish but it doesn't take much to get a whole lot of other things put in the scales that make the thing uh, um, unsustainable as as a negotiation now at that point is it possible to kind of pull the plug on the negotiation and say okay let's back off Uh, or not, I mean I fear that we may well be into a situation where it's not that's the nature of European negotiations in which case we may well be condemned to certainly more than six months it would be a miracle to get this thing done in six months uh, anyway but we may be condemned for a year or more of uh, very difficult negotiations and of course the closer we get to our own general election the less room for manoeuvre Gordon Brown will have the more pressure on David Cameron to uh, up the ante from the opposition uh, uh, point of view, so it will take something of uh, takes something of a miracle to uh, come out in the in the benign scenario.
0: Yeah, um, Clara O'Donnell Hi, uh, Clara O'Donnell former Chatham House researcher at NATO. Um, you mentioned the upcoming midterm review of the EU budget, and mentioned that it might actually be feasible uh, to deal with this issue in a rather facilitating way. I was wondering. Seeing Gordon Brown's rather entrenched views on the issue and his dislike of the cap, if France is not capable to shift, in so as, as you said it might, I mean, how do you foresee this uh, issue being dealt with? I mean, how, to what extent do you think there are risks of it becoming another long-winded uh, crisis with entrenched positions, ending up with a muddled compromise, or do you hope that it actually can be dealt with behind closed doors with a constructive, maybe compromise in the end? Thank.
1: I mean, one one possible uh, precedent is what uh, what happened in 2002-2003. You remember remember at the European Council in October 2002, there was a famous row between uh, Tony Blair and uh, Jacques Chirac in which Jacques Chirac accused Tony Blair of being the rudest man he'd uh, uh, he'd, uh, ever met, which, uh, given that Tony Blair is one of the politest people you could meet, suggests that Jacques Chirac hasn't met very many rude uh, uh, people in his life. Um, But the, the... The nub of that uh, argument was that Chirac was basically saying that the agricultural reform that was then on the agenda for the following year to be decided by majority vote by agriculture ministers, that that should be postponed and decided by unanimity by heads of government, in other words, giving France a veto on the outcome. Now, there was that very public row uh, between the two because Tony Blair uh, resisted that successfully. Um, and Jacques Chirac cancelled the forthcoming uh, Anglo-French summit, etc., etc. But then, once the dust from that particular battlefield had, uh, had cleared actually the agriculture ministers did get down to a negotiation and without very much uh, public uh, fanfare in 2003 agreed reform including the single farm payment which was one of the most significant reforms of the common agricultural policy that there has so far uh, been. So I think that in 2008 when the commission come forward with their proposals there is bound to be uh, a huge amount of hype and at that point if the negotiation on Institutional change is not over, then there is a real risk that the two things become linked and then we're off to the the races. If we have achieved an agreement on institutional changes, then I would hope it might be possible to to handle these other things in a slightly more uh, low-key and productive uh, productive way. There are other elements of this negotiation, of course, course, namely what the nature of the uh, uh, EU budget will be and in terms of how the EU budget is actually financed. And if issues such as the idea of a European tax uh, are raised, uh, then again, I mean, in, in UK domestic terms, um, I think that's uh, that would be a, um, a non-starter. But this European this European Commission has the great merit compared with some of its uh, uh, predecessors, not of, of, as it were, kowtowing to the member states. They've been very robust on the issues of trade protectionism, for example, um, but equally of recognizing what the political uh, realities are. One of the reasons why the President of the Commission, Don has not tackled up front uh, under a German presidency the whole issue of energy unbundling is for that reason. That doesn't actually mean to say that Nelly Kroos, the uh, uh, Competition Commissioner, isn't going to pursue the issue of, of unbundling through the powers at her disposal. She will. So I think that uh, you know, what I'm saying is that they are aware that issues like a European tax could be extremely neuralgic for a country such as our own.
0: The gentleman right. Thank you. John Worth. Um, I like to ask a question about personality politics. Um, I gain the impression that Tony Blair has always been someone that's warmed to international negotiations, has managed to build up some degree of friendship with other leaders. Gordon Brown has been very different in his relations with other finance ministers and quite often comes across as a bit hectoring and patronizing and doesn't necessarily warm to uh, his fellow finance ministers. Do you think that's a fair assessment and how do you think that will go when Gordon Brown is then negotiating with other prime ministers and presidents of the
1: future? I think it is a fair assessment. I mean, I think I think one of Tony Blair's uh, skills. I mean, his his, his negotiating technique is, is quite different from that of either Margaret Thatcher or John Major. I mean, Margaret Thatcher in a very confrontational way, uh, John Major in a very unconfrontational way. But nonetheless, they both basically adopted a policy which was you set a bottom line and then you you stick to it, um, and uh, you uh, if the. If the European car is driving towards the edge of the cliff, you, you hope that others will kind of put the brakes on before you uh, uh, have to. Tony Blair was much more inclined to set out his shop, as it were, in terms of possible compromises at a much earlier stage than some of us, his advisors, necessarily thought was wise or thought certainly was consistent with the, the kind of negotiating tactics we were used to. And on the whole, I, I think he was, uh, uh, he was successful, and part of that was that he was better, I think, than uh, either of his predecessors at kind of working a room, working the telephones. Uh, That that he he enjoyed. And I think a lot of of the business of uh, successful European negotiation uh, comes down to that. Um, You've got to... I mean, the worst worst negotiators on behalf of, of, of Britain are uh, ministers who come out to Brussels and sit in the delegation office saying Isn't this is all frightful uh, because meanwhile everybody else is down there in the room doing the deals. You've got to enjoy that kind of toing and froing to do it. Now Gordon Brown doesn't much like uh, uh, abroad. As you say, his, uh, his inclination is more Thatcherite. I mean he sets out a position and as he demonstrated over the whole question of the, of the withholding uh, tax, you can by that means produce uh, a successful uh, result. What he does have, however, and I've seen it in uh, in action, he does have the uh, ability as an orator to encapsulate a vision. I mean, I think that what he did on the international finance facility as a way of uh, achieving the Millennium uh, Development uh, Goals was very commendable, not just in terms of its inspiration, but in terms of the dedication and commitment and the oratory that he was prepared to uh, put, uh, put behind that. So I think that um, if, if his imagination is engaged and his commitment is engaged, then he can achieve the result. He will do it by different, different means. I think there is, a, there is a, a question on the basis of what we know of Gordon Brown so far as to how far he will become engaged on the whole range of issues which any prime minister on Europe or anything else has to, uh, uh, has to deal with. I mean, if you're Chancellor of the Exchequer, you have to do one thing. You have to run the economy. Uh, and that's a tough enough uh, task, but it does give you time to think in detail about particular issues uh, and not have to dart from one thing to, uh, uh, to another. That luxury he won't have anymore. Um, hey,
0: Okay, my question is about Brown's second option that you mentioned out of the three. Uh, basically, you said that uh, Brown could wait until the budget review in 2008. And I was thinking, despite the fact that Germany has shown some signals that it won't um, basically support France's agricultural uh, supports, et cetera, I think that in, in the medium or long term, bas- basically nothing will change. In the 2008 budget review, and therefore, what would you were talking about significant changes and insignificant ones, um, and basically, would there be anything significant that would take place after the 2008 review? Not
1: necessarily. I, I think. I mean, I think if Gordon Brown were to do it, it would be uh, in order to get himself into a sustainable political position uh, domestically, because it would be it would be a quite an attractive argument to a British domestic uh, uh, audience and. Uh, it would play for time. But my conclusion was uh, that, first of all, there's no there's no point in taking such a position if you can't get anybody to rally to it. I don't see why others would rally to it. And secondly, as I also said, I think you're less likely actually to get any kind of result. Um, I mean, it may be that the 2008 uh, debate doesn't lead to very significant conclusions, Um But your chances of getting significant conclusions would be that much less, I think, if the whole thing were done uh, very much in the public uh, forum, which is is why, at the end of the day, I think that if it can be done, um, you know, biting biting the bullet and going for a rather limited agreement uh, on institutional change is probably uh, the best thing we can do. One of the things I think the Germans will will do, rightly in my view, without giving new powers in the treaty on energy and climate change, is actually to have some reference to them in whatever document uh, uh, comes forward because I think that the point of doing all this stuff uh, is not uh, because we want to uh, change institutions for the sake of changing them the point of doing it is to make the institutions more uh, uh, effective now one of the issues which is very controversial is the one of whether you should have a long term chair of the European Council some member states, smaller member states in particular see this as the large countries wanting to kind of dominate uh, the European Union I've always seen it much more as simply putting the the management of the European Union on a more professional uh, basis. It is very difficult for a head of government for a period of six months when they've also got to run their domestic government to give the necessary attention to the business of the European Union. Plus the fact that because we are now 27 member states, What you actually need is to have somebody who can devote a huge amount of time with the President of the Commission in going around the European Union, talking to the other heads of government to build a consensus as to what the agenda should be. Gone are the days when the Commission could simply slap a few proposals on the table and sooner or later they uh, they would become law. You can't do that. You've got to have something that Maurice would remember, Geoffrey Howe was talking about 20 years ago, a kind of Queen speech approach, whereby you actually set out in advance what your agenda is going to be. And I see the president of the, of the European Council as doing that role. He's not gonna, he or she is not going to be the president of, uh, uh, of, uh, uh, of Europe.
0: Lady, over there. Uh,
2: Nina Pika. European political economy, and my question is, you mentioned that um, the U.K. should exercise European leadership, um, and that it should also rebalance its relationship with the U.S., um, perhaps even perhaps look away from the U.S. Um, and look towards Europe. Um, but at the same time, you also said that, it does, that the U.K. doesn't quite fit in with the Franco-German axis, which has been long established. So in this new relationship towards Europe, or a uh, Leadership role for the UK in Europe. Um, what do, who exactly will the UK have a special relationship with? Um, who will be its partner?
1: It may well—I mean, it may well be that uh, we can't establish the kind of relationship between Britain, France, and Germany that Tony Blair tried to do in, 2000 and, uh, uh, in 2003. It may therefore be that alliances within the European Union will shift. From uh, issue to issue. On the other hand, if you're looking at the foreign uh, policy profile, if you like, of the European uh, Union, there is a large measure of agreement between Britain, not just Britain, France, and Germany, uh, but Britain and most other uh, member states, particularly those member states who actually have the capacity to do things in the field, uh, including in terms of uh, including in terms of, uh, of, uh, of peacekeeping. Now, I think that. Uh, Instead of the British instinct being uh, maybe caricaturing, but to think, what do the Americans want, as it were, and that becomes the policy, and then you try as best you may to sell that to the uh, others. I think we can afford, uh, in uh, uh, the world in which we uh, in which we now live, i.e., the post-Soviet world, we can afford to take a rather more uh, objective view, if you like, of our own uh, national interests and where we see those national interests as as identical with those of our uh, uh, partners to formulate a European policy and to try and do more as a European Union to sell that to the uh, United States. I personally believe that one of the things that has been vindicated over the last uh, few years is the uh, compelling authority, if you like, of soft power. I'm not suggesting that there are not circumstances in which hard power... uh, uh, Shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be used, but those occasions I think are extremely extremely rare. And in commendation of what the British government are doing, what we've been trying to do over Iran is is an exact example of what we should be uh, uh, doing, i.e., doing what is desirable in terms of diffusing a very very difficult uh, situation and actually carrying the United States uh, with us. If we'd start, if on that occasion we'd and credit to Jack Straw who was really the author of the policy. But if we'd started there with something which went along with the neocon agenda, we could be in a more dire situation over Iran today than in practice we
0: are. We've got time for two, for two more questions. i take one from there, this gentleman, and then one from over there. Somebody right at the back. I think they'll probably have to be yeah, We'll see how um,
1: it goes. Uh, Paul Dare, can unanimous voting survive? Yes, but on 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 an increasingly limited range of uh, of issues. I mean, I think that we're not going to move away in the foreseeable future from a situation where there has to be consensus over basic instruments of foreign foreign policy. Um, You can have a lot of majority voting on the implementation, but I think that for any British government, uh, it will continue to be the case that they perceive one of the things that defines you as a member state is ultimately your ability to set your own foreign policy, and that in turn implies that there has to be consensus on the basic uh, foreign policies that the European Union uh, pursues. There's not going to be, in the foreseeable future, uh, majority voting on uh, on tax issues. Uh, Tony Blair's own kind of instincts, personal instincts, may have been... Uh, slightly more accommodating uh, perhaps than those of of Gordon Brown. But in the last analysis, there was no disagreement between the two of them that the British national interest uh, required uh, the maintenance of unanimity on uh, on tax issues. And interestingly, um, Britain now has more support for that view uh, than was the case uh, when uh, New Labour first came into, uh, uh, into power So I think you're going to have a limited number of issues. Some of them will be very controversial. Some of the aspects of the operation of social security are another another example where unanimity will will remain. I think the case for uh, majority voting in terms of cooperation on asylum and and immigration uh, issues and the whole fight against uh, terrorism and international uh, crime is a compelling one. And under the shield, if you like, of... uh, The opt-out on frontier controls that the British government secured at Amsterdam, actually the British government wants to participate uh, and take part in majority voting decisions on most of those those things.
0: One more. Gentleman right at the back.
1: Uh, Three final questions for the future. Uh, First of all, do you see the UK joining the single currency? Secondly, uh, do you see the UK joining the Schengen Agreement? And thirdly, how will um, Cameron's agenda differ from Gordon's, Gordon Brown's should he become Prime Minister after him? On the single currency, it's hard to, it is hard to see at present. I I, mean, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't myself advocate uh, membership of the single currency at this moment. I do, however, think that if we are serious about using the European Union as an instrument of policy on the issues which I've uh, uh, talked about and if we're serious about trying to maximize our competitive advantage or perhaps more correctly limit our competitive disadvantage in a globalized uh, uh, world, then in the long term, the more coherent management of uh, the European economy, including British participation in the single currency is a, uh, uh, a desirable. I think one of the interesting features of the single currency and one of the illustrations of the fact that the old uh, dream or nightmare, depending on your point of view, of a federal Europe uh, is just that, uh, a dream, is the fact that the the political unity that was always going to accompany uh, economic and monetary union hasn't actually uh, happened. As uh, As regards Schengen, we have under the terms of the Amsterdam Treaty the right to opt in to measures which are, uh, uh, which are, which are uh, taken. Now, I think that uh, in terms of, a, of, a, of an objective assessment of, of, of British interest, we could afford to opt in to uh, those Schengen arrangements on a full-time uh, basis. But I, my sense is that partly because of uh, the political sensitivity of immigration issues, that that's less on the agenda now than it was, say, when Jack Straw was uh, Home Secretary in the early days of the the Labour government. As regards uh, David Cameron's uh, uh, agenda, I mean, I don't know, but I suspect that David Cameron is one of those uh, uh, people, many of them, who without being Eurosceptic in the traditional sense, slightly feels that kind of, you know, what what is the relevance of Europe to Britain's uh, uh, modern-day needs. Uh, now, I think as Prime Minister, he would very quickly see uh, what that relevancy is, and I tried to describe some of it in my, uh, uh, in, my, uh, in my talk. So I think that, I mean, Tony Blair is probably the most pro-European Prime Minister we've had since uh, Ted Heath, but fundamentally uh, the policies that he's pursued have not been dramatically different from those of uh, Margaret Thatcher before her very last year or two in office, or very different from those which John Major would have pursued with uh, a larger majority than the one that he had after the 92 uh, uh, election. And I think David Cameron would be in a very similar uh, position. In other words, the constraints on a British Prime Minister that come from a basic kind of Euro-scepticism uh, in the British public would mean that... Uh, on all the institutional issues which confront us from time to time, uh, he would be as reluctant as his predecessors, but that equally he would be, uh, I think, uh, embracing the the kind of pragmatic reform issues which have uh, have been uh, typical fodder for successive successive British prime ministers. Now, I would hope uh, that whoever is prime minister, given that the old agenda of the the 1970s and 1980s of something that might in due time have become a federal Europe. Given that that is not uh, on the agenda, I would hope that it might be possible for David Cameron or whoever else to actually overcome some of those inhibitions and to persuade the British people uh, that um, we needn't uh, worry about those things in the way that we have have in the past. But I think it's going to be very difficult for him. After all, he has to protect his flank both in terms of his own party supporters uh, as well as in terms of a possible uh, uh, drift of some of those to uh, to UKIP. So that will constrain uh, the positions that he takes up in opposition, which in turn will obviously constrain what he's able to do if he comes into government.
0: Well, Stephen, we have a sort of a, a, sort of a 7.30 rule, a rule of thumb uh, in assessing um, the success of an event, namely because at 7.30... Uh, I think as a uh, flow of people towards the door begins I counted only about three people uh, who left at the 730 watershed and, and no doubt they had compelling reasons to be elsewhere. I well thank you for test- thank,
1: thank you for locking the doors. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> <laughs> Look,
0: that is testimony to the really rich quality event we've had tonight. Uh, You've given us a great talk. You've been an excellent answer to questions. Can you I wonder if you to just tell us when um uh, wearing your historian's hat as opposed to your futurologist hat uh the book the history of Britain's relationship with the EU will see the light of day.
1: Well, uh, provided that the Foreign Office censors uh, uh, give it their approval, which is not uh, a foregone conclusion, um, it should come out in the spring of, uh, of next year. Of next year. Yeah.
0: Well, Stephen, thank you very, very, thank you very much. Thank you.